You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. It's been just over a year since Manufactured launched, and one of the best parts of creating this show has been talking to such a diverse group of stakeholders. And it got me thinking, what if I could leverage the show to bring unexpected groups of people together for candid conversation? While so many of the inter-industry events that already take place do manage to bring diverse stakeholder groups together, there's often only one or two suppliers amongst a much larger group of sustainability professionals. So I thought, what if we could flip the script? Bring unexpected groups of people together who may otherwise not get the chance to talk and do so in a way that puts suppliers in the majority. Not because suppliers are more important, but because it creates a dynamic that's different to a lot of the other important conversations already happening. This episode is the first attempt. It's a conversation between three manufacturers and an activist slash educator. Before getting into things, I want to introduce each of our guests. First, we have Jay Shroff of Fashion Panda, an India-based manufacturer of timeless loungewear and women's wear. Second, we have Amrin Sachatep of Atlantic Mills, a vertically integrated denim manufacturer primarily based in Thailand. And the last manufacturer on today's show is Suzanne Vitiart, CEO of Boma Jewelry. Boma also has its factory in Thailand, and they produce for their own brand as well as for larger retailers. Last but not least, we have Kate Carrick, the educator and activist behind Sustainable Outfits. Sustainable Outfits is a blog, Instagram account, and beyond. I can't do it justice in just a couple of words here, but I've been a fan of the critical and thoughtful content she puts out for a while now, and I'll let her tell you more about it. So in this episode, part one of our chat, we cover a big question. As an educator and activist, it can be hard to filter the real from the noise. And side note, this can be hard even for people who are in the industry. So what kind of information would Suzanne, Jay, and Amrin like to see Kate looking at when educating the public about the fashion industry? In part two of this conversation, also out today, we get into two equally big questions. First, overproduction. Kate gets a lot of comments and questions about overproduction. On the one hand, suppliers benefit from more orders. On the other hand, they too are people who want to pass on an inhabitable planet to the next generation. How would Suzanne, Amran, and Jay like Kate to engage in conversations about overproduction? Second, we talk about the common practice of calling out brands. What do Jay, Amran, and Suzanne think about activists and educators calling out brands? Is it helpful? How does it impact their businesses? And what does Kate think of their suggestions? This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Jay, 
Amrin, Suzanne, Kate, thank you so much for being willing to participate in this experiment. I'm so, so glad to have you here. Um, before we get into things, I want to start by having each of you introduce yourselves and just share a little bit about who you are and what you do. Suzanne, let's start with you. Um, my name is Suzanne Betiar. Um, I'm based in Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm I'm the CEO of Boma Jewelry. We are a 40-year-old family business. Um, the company was started by my parents um, in Seattle. Um, we also own our factory in Bangkok, Thailand. So um, uh, before the pandemic, I used to travel quite often back and forth between Seattle and Bangkok. Um, I was based out of Bangkok before moving back to Seattle um, up until a couple years ago. Yeah. Can you actually tell us a bit about what you make? Yeah. So we, we focus on sterling silver jewelry. We also do gold jewelry as well. Um, but that that's where we're in, you know, accessories, uh, specifically affordable fine jewelry. Um, so our, our retail price points in the U.S. are, you know, around 45 to 100 um, U.S. dollars. Um and we also do, we also manufacture, through the factory, we manufacture for other major retailers as well. And I guess for us as a, our factory is 200 people. So we still see ourselves as like small to medium. Um, you know, our factory um, 20 years ago was 500 people. And we used to produce for like QVC and like really, really big major retailers, Target. But though, when you get to that scale, it's just like there's no equity and so that that's kind of been our focus is like, um, do what we can do, but also do it at a scale where we can kind of find the right balance and equity, because I think that's really, you know, the big the biggest issue is like, quantity and volume and scale. And as you get so big that you, you have no control, mm. um, especially as a manufacturer, and, and we're unique, because we are in retail, so we can speak directly to the, the customer. But, you know, if we didn't have that kind of control in terms of communication, it, it would be really hard. We'd have to be innovating, I think, a lot um, on the back end. Jay, I put you on the spot next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jay Shroff from Fashion Panda. We're a manufacturer providing design to delivery capability to our clients. So as a business, we've always been very closely tied with uh, sourcing fabrics and materials for our clients, right, at the new development stage. Uh, but now we also provide more of the design input. And um, uh, much more recently, we've also tested uh, 3D design. Um, and uh, 3D design actually, I think, uh, has huge potential uh, in our industry, by the way. And um, it's something that I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, doing more for our clients and providing value um, in that way. So we currently focus on two product categories. One is um, value-added women's and girls' wear, where we have operations such as specialized washes, embroideries, quilting, uh, smocking, pleats, just to name a few. And the second is uh, comfort loungewear, uh, which we've actually been producing for many years now. And um, it's a category that uh, you know, while we saw many brands get into this category for the first time after the pandemic, but um, uh, it's 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 something that um, uh, has become a, a crowded market almost now for the end consumer. 
Um, so we've, we've always liked this category because um, it caters to a customer that likes uh, effortless and timeless style and in pure and natural and environmentally friendly fabrics. Our uh, main market now is uh, Europe. And next year, we're going to be working with brands in the Australia and New Zealand market and the UAE. Uh, so our business is based in uh, Mumbai, India, where we have our factory and our head office. And that is us in a nutshell. And Amrin, how about you before we get to Kate? <laughs> so my name is Amrin. I'm based in Thailand. And um, basically... Our history dates back through three generations. So my grandfather came obviously from India, pre-break uh, off of India with Pakistan. Um, and when we moved to Thailand, they were trading. So specifically fabric traders. And obviously from one, carrying just one roll around, um, you know, started trading in textiles here in Thailand. Um, my grandfather then sent one of my, his oldest uh, sons to Japan uh, to to Kobe, actually, back in 1960. And that's actually how we got acquainted with the denim side of our facility. So we're a denim factory based here in Thailand. And through trading, buying a product from Japan, mainly second choice goods, obviously, because first, first choice goods was really expensive at the time. We traded here, brought it back to Thailand and started selling domestically here in Thailand. Well, you started selling in Thailand. Correct. So we imported Japanese goods to Thailand. I didn't know that, yeah. And then... Then obviously, because we had a we had an idea that okay, you know, um, Japanese denim has a certain look that's specific to the market. But uh, my partner today, um, he actually was interested in the Italian uh, definition of product and how Italians were a bit more colorful, a bit more playful with the denim side. So he went explored Italy, went to all the PV shows. The time when none of us were allowed there, Asian people. We're talking nineteen nineties started making acquaintances with a lot of the mills there, buying second choice goods there and bringing them back to Thailand. And then basically we merged that concept of Italian, Japanese into a creation of our own here in Thailand. Now Atlantic Mills actually has a pretty interesting history because the company Atlantic Mills itself was pre-97 was owned by Burlington USA and was based in Longford, Ireland. So when that mill went bankrupt in 97, um, we took over 200 of the 200 containers worth of product, or not product, but machines, um, and moved those machines to Thailand. Hence the name Atlantic Mills in the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> so you get it gets a bit confusing there. But Atlantic Mills was actually on the ocean at that particular time. Um, so we moved to Thailand, and we over time basically we knew those machines were outdated. So we sold off and we bought newer machines to repla replace replace it. And essentially that is what Atlantic Mills is today. Everything in the company is 15 to 20 years old. The company itself has was established in 2001. So we're on our 20th year right now. And uh, that's uh, run by a family organization, of course, me and my partner and a couple other uh, family members. And um, yeah, that's, that's basically the history behind the company. And which parts of the production process are you doing now? So over time from 2001, we had only the denim mill. We're buying all the yarn from Japan, from from China, Hong Kong specifically, the last standing yarn spinning company in Hong Kong and Thailand, three locations of yarn. We took over our supplier in 2014 in Thailand when they decided to no longer be part of the, their business. They're only doing yarn specifically at that time. 
So we took over that company, merged that to Atlantic Mills. So we went obviously backward integration. And then in 2018, we, because of the European business being such a big chunk of our business today, um, and the Europeans are interested in just buying the textile, like the US market, we had to forward integrate as well. Um, and we also set up our, our, our own garment factory in Laos, specifically Laos, because Laos has free duty into Europe. So, so not Thailand. Thailand obviously lost a lot on, on the ability to be able to produce for overseas customers due to higher wages uh, and not having any GSP advantages to Europe. So everything from the fabric production all the way through to cut and sew. Correct. But our cut and sew part is still very small. It's literally only 5% of our business. Um, we still are primarily a fabric mill driven mill. The fabric that you are selling, you said most of your customers are in Europe, but are you selling directly to brands or are you selling to cut and sew factories? So we only we work directly to the brands and then they nominate their factories back in Asia, specifically Vietnam, Bangladesh, China, even Indonesia, Turkey. Um, these are generally where our fabrics go to. Um, our European business, more than 50% of our European business is driven by our own garment facility now, simply because they're only interested in the full garment package. Um, and simply because uh, Pakistan and uh, Turkey today have taken a big part of that business in garment away from us. So we have to obviously provide the full package. But as far as U.S. customers are concerned, all of it still, the U.S. people still want to have and decide on their fabric, on their um on their cut and make, they still want to be innovative. And um, actually, it's it's funny because today there are more U.S. brands who are who are successful in Europe as well because of this. You know, so so we do see that there is a positive energy when when brands actually want to still identify with the fabric as well and not just the full package itself. Interesting. So you're negotiating with the brands, but then actually probably like the financial transaction is with the cut and sew factory that's been nominated by the brand. Is that right? Correct. Kate, I want to turn to you because you started out your career in the fashion industry in Shanghai, and then you were in Turkey, where I understand you were working, doing a lot of freelance work as a writer. Um, How does all of this bring you to sustainable outfits and what is sustainable outfits it's very weird sustainable outfits kind of basically started out as my blog where i could i designed like all the or these like little outfit grids of like styling stuff and then when i was in turkey i was doing a lot of freelance writing and so i basically used that model and did like uh sustainable brand guides kind of on the side but there was a point where it was like sharing all these brands and like you can't really confirm what's going on and like brand PR is like artisan made like organic cotton and it's like a lot of that stuff it's like you don't get to know the brand just by like reading their little PR slogan and so that was kind of off-putting and so I actually kind of took a break for a year and I moved to London and uh went to grad school and in grad school I started studying um, embroidery and indigenous communities and cultural appropriation and that kind of got me back into kind of looking at the systems of the fashion industry and uh how to change that and um so that's kind of how I evolved to where I am today how how would you kind of describe 
describe what you do now? Um, I would say like part of it is education, part of it is activism, part of it is awareness, and then part of it is kind of my own personal thoughts as I kind of go. Like I go on lots of rants about things because right now I guess Instagram is, I mean, they only have like a thousand words <laughs> that you can write in a uh, caption, but that's kind of my writing platform as well. And I found that it's uh, a really nice way to get out things and kind of create traction on things in like short little bites. And that with social media being the way it is, short little bites is kind of how you have to go about things. Kate, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there because I think the, the crux of the issue is how are educators or activists um, or people sort of in your position who do have a large platform and a, and a following, how are they supposed to access the information that you need in order to be able to ensure that what you're putting out there is, um, you know, sort of represents the real situation, right? And I think this is an especially relevant question, given that one of the themes that comes up again and again and again on this show is an unequitable distribution of financial risk and reward and how this sort of basically is the 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 sort of problematic foundation that needs to be fixed before we can even begin to tackle any of the other uh, anything else in the sustainability agenda. Um, but this comes down to relationships and is not information that's available to the public. And Jay and Amrin and Suzanne, I'm curious your take on this as suppliers. Like, what would you like to see people like Kate um, looking at? Jay, let's start with you. Um, I think it's the numbers. I mean, I think there will have to be uh, fewer suppliers in the mix, right? And that'll just happen as a, as a function of um, I think when people, you know, when factories, um, you know, as happened during the pandemic, were having to shut down, which is obviously a terrible thing, but I think the market is going to decide that. Uh, and that's why I think it's going to take um, a long time for it to happen. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I think that maybe, you know, it's, it's really uh, counter sort of intuitive to, always be looking for like the silver bullet of answer or solution. I just really think it's like we have to contextually accept that we're in a very complex issue or problem. I mean, just like any one of the larger issues we have, you know, living as, you know, um, citizens of the planet. And so I think for me, it's so it is really heavy. It's so much. And I think the as a human, we just don't know how to process it so overwhelming. But I think that you see that there are people who are doing things consistently over time. And then you look back and you see how much progress you've made. And I think that's sort of like maybe what we have to pay attention to is that five years ago, look where we were and look where we are today. But I think if we're like always forward thinking, it's just so, so much to kind of trudge through. And it's so complex and it, you know, goes up, goes down. It just like, it's too much. But I think when you look back, you really see that progress. At least it's for us too. It's like, um, I, you know, I came into this industry about six years ago. I was working in a different industry. Um, but I do see like, even within our own kind of footprint, like we've made a lot of progress 
just by being consistent and wanting to learn how to do more. And we try to be pretty good too about being honest about like, we still have a lot of work to do. We know that we are a lot more transparent than most other jewelry companies, but we're, we, we try to be like not righteous about what we do. Cause I think that really, that really confuses customers as well. Like if you're like, we do this and they do that and they're really bad. I think that, that just, and then you get those like sound bites and whatever, and then it's really empty. You know, the other thing is like, how are they owned? You know, ownership is a really big thing. If they're like funded by private equity or a lot of like investors, like you have to see that they're, they're, you know, sort of, um, you know, demand to grow at a certain rate is very different from like companies that have existed for a very long time and are privately owned, maybe a family business or, you know, that, that has, to me, that's kind of like what I look at being in the industry. It's like, yes, this, you know, this American sustainable company is amazing. It's great. But like how, what's the owning structure? Because if it's not, you know, Mm -hmm. this, um, this sort of model that's really built to sort of last, it's one that's just accelerated growth that has a lot to do with the supply chain. Jay? Um, I think, um, I, you know, just I, I actually like what Suzanne just said um, in that, you know, this last part about you got to look at the ownership structure and you see what, um, you know, say the brand um, or your customer is driven by, right? I mean, if you're owned by private equity, uh, you, you're driven by different metrics and you're you, you're obviously looking at, uh, uh, you know, you're looking at it, at, at it differently than if you're um, family owned, for example. But um, so, so I think in, in that sense, like that whole question, um, the overarching question of like distribution of financial risk, um, you know, in the supply chain, um, I, I think like it could happen um, and it's great to see um, for it to happen in like small pockets uh, but my comment earlier was about, um, you know, for it to happen sort of across the industry, far and wide, uh, you know, that I thought would, was going to take a lot of time, which is what I covered earlier. But um, it would be very interesting to see it. And I think even for us as a business, um, you know, I've talked to you about this, Kate, uh, before, uh, Kim, before uh, shared my thoughts on, you know, how I would look to, um, you know, when I, whenever I do get to meet with my customer, right, you know, say that's next year, face to face i'd love to talk to them about uh, this concept of how we can um, do this in a long term partnership uh, with mm-hmm. the shared equity in this right and, and that's not an easy conversation to have um, but um, it would be very interesting um, to get there right i mean that would be uh, a goal for us hmm. yeah and suzanne I, I really liked another thing that you said too earlier which is like I, I didn't I don't think you said it in these words, but so you tell me if I've got if I'm totally misconstruing them. But it's almost like one of the things that I look for too is like, you know, the these are systemic problems. And that means we're all like the our point of departure should be we're all guilty in some way. We're all implicated in some way. And so the question is like in what ways are we implicated? In what ways are we contributing to the problem or to the wrong incentives? And a lot of this, most of the suppliers that I talk to are really willing to have that conversation and to talk about, you know, in what ways, you know, are they, are they, you know, do they feel good about what they're doing? And in what ways would they like to be doing better? And I think like what's missing for me is that I don't think 
you really, it's, it's rare to see that kind of vulnerability coming from the brand side. And that's personally what I would like to see more of um, is like, you know, having brands say, okay, well, you know, these are the things that we're doing and these are the ways that we contribute to these issues. And this is how we're thinking about, you know, changing that as imperfect as it might be. But I think like, you know, with culturally, um, and especially with like the rise of cancel culture and stuff, like there's not a lot of room for that kind of conversation, a kind of like a, a, a conversation where people are vulnerable and, and able to sort of be open about, you know, how they might like to be better. I would say on brands and cancel culture, I, I've, I guess I'm in the kind or it's like I see a lot of the like calling out brand stuff and I do it myself. Um, but a major fast fashion brand has never been canceled. And I think that actually a lot of what people want is vulnerability from the brand. It's like uh, Helena Hemlerson, who's the CEO, CEO of H&M, not coming out and saying like, oh, we're the most sustainable brand in the world. Uh, and like, like, all these things it's actually more of like a okay we know that like x y and z is bad and like we could do this and this and this and this is why we haven't yet and like maybe we're working on it and i think a lot of the times with like brand pr it, there's a whole system of kind of magazines and documentaries and um pr statements that these brands use and like celebrity endorsements that create an area where I I wouldn't say that there's no room for brands being vulnerable. I would say that they don't take that opportunity. It's interesting to hear that your sense is that that's what people want, that people want that vulnerability. And that makes me somehow maybe naively optimistic. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a legal side to it too, which I think is a big barrier. But anyway, that's that's another can of worms. Oh, I would say that if H&M came out tomorrow and was like, you know, we are not sustainable, we don't pay our workers, and we're probably not going to, I would respect that so much more than I respect what they're doing now. This conversation is uh, evolving into new territory that's really interesting, quite organically. But I just want to circle back to Amren and see, you know, do you have any thoughts on this and on, you know, what you'd like the public, what kind of information you'd, you'd like to be seeing get to the public? So um, basically, I mean, I think less is more. <laughs> um, that's essentially what we want to drive at, you know. Um, and I think it's it's very important that the retailers themselves understand that less is more. I mean, the thing is, today, especially during the pandemic, I've seen brands who've obviously stayed open through through the pandemic do a lot better than they've ever have in their life um, with profit margins, which are extremely high compared to what they've had in the last 10 years. And, and actually what's actually happened, yes. especially in the last six months is they've had so many supply disruptions that, that they've actually been forced to have less in their store to sell. So they've obviously not marked down as they're usually are used to doing, you know, and simply not marking down itself is a way in which, people can, not only will the financiers actually be happy in the end, I mean, even the people who are buying the, the product will also think twice about not buying something on sale. I mean, the whole, the whole concept of going to a store in the US 
and seeing a sign that says buy two get one free or buy two for the price of three that has to change you know we can't we can't go yeah. to the store and have that mentality mm-hmm. you know so so less is more is is definitely the right definition and then obviously being able to um show that recycling is a must you know i mean we have to be very careful with the recycling part because in some ways a lot of brands actually have a bin at the store available so that people can actually return their garments and then use that for the recycling purpose you know so we don't want to entice them to to be able to wear it once or two times then throw it back and think of it as a cost as opposed to you know in the past people used to go to thrift stores and rent a suit you know for a wedding for example you know we don't want people to think of that clothing and and throw it down and obviously with the age of social media instagram whatever people want to be able to wear their clothes once and jay especially probably faces this you know people want to wear it once take a photo and then all of a sudden they don't want to be shown to be wearing that same product again one of the beauties of denim actually is is that people do want to wear denim longer it's actually completely the opposite of what fashion is and it's one of the biggest drivers Mm -hmm. in in our aspect to really especially the japanese attitude of buying raw and then wearing it Mm -hmm. down over a longer time it really really has Mm -hmm. the right scope in where people really do measure that but there are brands who have taken it the complete wrong way where they want to be able to offer the second hand product to the buyers so that they have more clothing to wear and that needs to change and on that note we're going to close part 1 of this conversation but be sure to check out part 2 which is also out today where we get into two equally big questions one about overproduction and how Suzanne Amran and Jay would like Kate to ex- engage in conversations about overproduction and two about the common practice of calling out brands what do Jay, Amran, and Suzanne think about activists and educators calling out brands? How does it impact their businesses? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that.